Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. One question I get asked all the time is, should I become a BCBA? And my short answer is yes, because I love the field of ABA and I'm passionate about it. And I want people that are passionate about ABA to become BCBAs also. But my long answer gets a little bit more complicated. And the follow-up questions I get are, how do I become a BCBA? What are best practices for supervision? I am not an expert in this, so I decided to bring one in. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Jen Klapich. She was actually one of my grad school professors, and she is now the program director of applied behavior analysis at National Lewis. She started their program there, and she is an absolute wealth of knowledge. She's an expert at the ever-changing supervision process, and we go really detailed into the supervision piece because if you are currently studying ABA or your behavior analyst right now, you know how complicated that supervision can be. But we talk about kind of the three big things that you need to accomplish to become a BCBA and some of the details and her tips and advice for overcoming each step of that process. So let's jump right in. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to talk all things BCBA. (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you for having me. 
I actually think I don't know the answer to this question. Um, as I previously said, Jen was my professor when I was in grad school, but I don't know what actually brought you to the ABA world. I don't know if I've ever heard that story. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of a long and winding story, but I guess, um, so when I was, um, in undergrad and I was majoring in psychology and anthropology, um, which, you know, both I, I recognize, like I'm going to have to go to grad school and get more advanced training because those undergraduate degrees are really kind of like sampler platters of, you know, different philosophies and schools of thought and things like that. And, um, I did a research internship as an undergrad um, working in a program called Parenting Our Children to Excellence, which, you know, really focused on training parents in not necessarily, you know, using applied behavior analysis or anything like that, but just really focused on more approaching uh, parent training from a skill deficit perspective. And it was really working with, you know, parents who might be at risk of, um, you know, losing their uh, custody of their kids or something like that um, to the state due to, you know, things like um, I think the term is like an environmental neglect, like not maintaining a safe household type thing. Um, so not necessarily, you know, abuse or anything like that, but just, you know, working with parents, particularly those, um, you know, in more rural areas of the state, because I went to school in Indiana, um, who just, you know, didn't realize that it wasn't uh, okay to you know, have giant gaping holes in your roof or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was really cool to me to look at this from a skill deficit perspective and from a training perspective. Um, and that got me really interested in, in just working with parents in that capacity. And when I started to look at graduate programs, you know, there's all these different schools of thought, obviously for psychology and in reading about behaviorism and learning about it as an undergrad and, um, seeing programs in applied behavior analysis to me, it was just, well, that that's the way the world turns, (laughs) you know, never a big, you know, aha moment of, oh my goodness, you know, looking at antecedents and consequences and, you know, someone's entire repertoire and their learning history, it was just, well, doesn't everyone think like this? <laughs> you know, that's kind of how I think too. I never really had an aha moment. I was like, yeah, duh. Like, yeah. of course. <laughs> uh, yeah. The longer I'm in this field though, the more I realize that it's not um, kind of the, that worldview <laughs> that <true>. everyone has. <laughs> um, and so it, it, I think, you know, going into the field, um, with that perspective and learning so much, not just about, you know, how other people behave, but really thinking about why I behave the way that I behave and thinking about all these experiences that I had growing up. Um, it really was, uh, a very therapeutic yeah. <laughs> time in, in grad school. So, but yeah, it's just, it, that's how I see the world turn. I don't ever really take off my behavior analytic, you know, hat. It's just, you know, it's like, it's like gravity to me. So. Yeah, you can't, like, sometimes I actually wish I could, like, especially with my own kids, because I, get, <laughs> I have, like, arguments with myself about, like, but I'm reinforcing this behavior in this, and it's like, you just can't not think that way. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, <laughs> it can be quite stressful. Well, that's, I, you know, I, I actually didn't, yeah, like I said, I didn't know kind of your story of what brought you to ABA, and I love that it's not autism, because there's such a misconception that, you know, ABA is only utilized with kids with autism. So it's cool that it's actually parent training that brought you to this field. For sure. And, you know, it's interesting for me too, especially as the the field continues to evolve and, and working with students and seeing, you know, their field experiences and things like that. And like you were saying, um, 
what what things are like today and what they were like, you know, when you were a student, when I was a student, um, it, it does seem to be evolving really rapidly, I think, in in the the context of how, you know, most fields kind of evolve and then just kind of plateau for a bit. Um, but I, you know, throughout my field experiences when I was a student, um, wasn't doing, you know, kind of what we see as traditional line therapy or discrete trial training or anything like that with kids with autism. I started off working with um, adults in a residential facility and a state-operated residential facility, um, so with really profound um, intellectual uh, impairments, and um, so you know, working in that setting. And then I went and worked in schools in a cross-cat um, classroom in a middle school classroom for kids with uh, emotional and behavioral disorders, and some of them also, you know, um, had other disabilities and. Um, you know, but a really wide range of, you know, presenting repertoires and, and yeah. skill sets. And um, it wasn't until after I got certified um, that I even did any direct, you know, like one-to-one -one therapy like we see it done today. And it was just kind of a, a side gig I took because I saw the field moving in that way. And, you know, the insurance mandates hadn't really gone into effect yet. So again, it wasn't like it is today. But I was like, I should probably get some experience doing this because this seems like where things are going. And up until that point, I did mostly consultative work. And um, after I graduated, I was working in specialized foster care and again, focusing on parent training. And um, it just it's it, it's wild to me how today I feel like the experiences that students are getting are they don't have that that range and that diversity in terms of the types of clients that they're working with, the types of, you know, programs that they're developing and working on. Um, so in some respects, you know, it's, it's hard to relate. Yeah. And because, you know, that's <laughs> where, you know, which, you know, we can talk about a few minutes, but that's where all the, you know, the internship opportunities are too, which is like a good thing that there's a lot of opportunities, but, you know, we also do want obviously to develop behavior analysts that are well-rounded, you know, and, and the range of experiences you've had is so, amazing that you like kind of grew up as a behavior analyst knowing that this could be applied in so many different settings. Yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, there's, a, I think there's a lot of environmental variables <laughs> that contributed to my ability to have such uh, diverse training experiences. And, um, I think it's a little bit more difficult to get those today. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, the re well, the reason I really wanted to have you on to talk about becoming a BCBA, and there's honestly so many topics I would love to chat with you about because I think you are <laughs> such a wealth of knowledge, but especially this kind of process of becoming a behavior analyst, because I get asked, you know, especially by teachers a lot, you know, they've started mm -hmm in a self-contained classroom, in a special ed role, and you start learning about ABA and you kind of start drinking the Kool-Aid. You're like, oh, mm -hmm. this is cool. And then, you know, seeing the job opportunities pop up, I get asked a lot, like, should I become a BCBA? And my like annoying answer is like, yes. And then I like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what else to say. Like there's, there's so much more obviously that goes into it. So let's kind of, I don't know, take a bird's eye view. What's like the overall process to becoming a BCBA? Yeah. So, um, I think at the, at the core of it is always going to be, you know, having the right graduate coursework, um, having the field experience or the, you know, those practicum or internship hours, and then passing the certification exam. Now we've, you know, continue to have changes in our requirements and t standards, you know, and I think we're in our third, you know, 
revision of those standards, even just since I've been in the field. Um, but you know, so right now you have to have a graduate degree in either behavior analysis, education, or psychology. Um, and then either within that degree or on top of that degree. So if you, you know, got your master's in, you know, special education and didn't have any coursework in there on, um, behavior analysis, then you could just take those as either, you know, a certificate program or as, you know, a more a post-master's degree. Um, so, you know, the BACB has their outlines for all the different, um, you know, courses that you have to take, the content that has to be covered in each of those and the number of hours and things like that. So, you know, the degree and then the coursework um, and then the field experience. And so, that I think is one of the, the biggest things that's changing in terms of uh, what you know counts as qualifying activities when you're completing your field experience and the percentage of supervision and things like that that you need. So I don't know how much into the the mathematical. Yeah, I know that's like a whole. Go. That's a whole headache for me. But that's yeah. that is kind of what I do stress to people is like it's not you know the coursework is just one piece and the supervision is such a huge and important one. And I yeah. and I meet a lot of people that they're like, oh, I did the coursework. It's the supervision I'm struggling with that you know they're waiting on. Like what, and especially for people with on online programs, like what advice or recommendations do you have for people for approaching supervision, whether that's even just like finding a placement, selecting a supervisor, um, like having a range of types of experience, like how can you try to make that happen? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing that I emphasize to students or anyone who wants to talk to me about this process is that like, like you said, it's not just your coursework, um, the supervision and the experience that you get really will make or break the type of behavior analyst that you become and how, you know, well equipped you are to start practicing independently, which for the most part, like as soon as you graduate that first job you take, um, you're going to be more or less independent. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we talk about how, you know, thinking about what you need to get out of this experience, right? So the, the BACB has their whole task list of all the different um, training activities that you need to get experience in and be able to demonstrate proficiently. Um, and it's, you know, like you said, it's not just about learning about these things in a textbook. It's about, can you actually do them in practice? Can you do them independently while under supervision as well? So really looking for um, a placement that can provide that kind of progressive training, right? So getting the opportunity to observe things, then getting the opportunity to, you know, practice things with, you know, heavy guidance, and then slowly working towards more independence so that by the end of your training experience, you know, your supervisor should be able to uh, delegate tasks to you and really just kind of confirm after they're completed that they were done proficiently because, that's what you're going to be expected to do um, as a practicing BCBA, except you won't have anyone for the most part looking over your shoulder or checking your work. So this is your opportunity to get all of that feedback and all of that guidance. And so when I talk to students, I really emphasize that like, this is your training experience. So you need to be the one that's advocating for the skills that you need to learn. You need to be the one that's kind of self-monitoring along the way for what you have had an opportunity to just talk about versus actually observe, practice, et cetera. And when you're looking for a supervisor, I think back to, you know, when I was a student and it was really just 
trying to find a place that had a BCBA at yeah. it at the time because it was so few and far between. And it was just assumed, um, oh, if there was a BCBA there, then they would provide you supervision. But now as the standards have really grown as they should, there is so much work that goes into providing good supervision. And it really is, um, you know, I say like a, a burden, but it is a hefty undertaking. And so really teaching students to look for sites and supervisors that have the capacity to give them, to give the students the attention and time that they need and that they deserve, because that's what the training experience should be about. It's not just about going in and putting in the hours. It's about, you know, being trained. And so I think now, as you know, we were saying, there's all of these different um, agencies and opportunities for students to work as technicians or as RBTs. And this, it's great because there's so many more paid uh, placements available now as compared to, you know, what was historically available. Um, but we also have to think, okay, so you're taking this position as an RBT or as a therapist with a company and their primary goal and responsibility is to provide services to the clients. And so anything extra that you need as the student you know, you're really adding on top of that supervisor's uh, workload that they would normally be just, you know, providing to the clients. And what happens is a lot of the times is that, you know, the students will be working as um, RBTs or technicians and the supervisors are providing, you know, case oversight so that clinical supervision as it's necessary just for the client's programming. And that's good, you know, that that's a bare minimum. But again, the focus there is on the client's programming and not on the development of the, the practicum students, the field experience students' repertoire. And that's on top of that supervisor's job. That's not billable to insurance. Yeah. Um, and so really trying to coach students in when they're interviewing at different places, um, different questions that they can ask, things that they can ask about kind of the system, the systems that are built, um, just so that like, they have an understanding of whether or not the BCBAs working there have time carved out in their workload to provide field experience supervision. Because if it's set up just so that field experience supervision and case oversight are you know, synonymous, that's, that's not okay. Those two things serve two very fundamental different purposes. Um, but I think it gets, you know, hard for students to ask these questions um, in interviews. <laughs> yeah. And but your whole point on like, it's it's advocating for yourself. Like if you're going to have, if you're going to work as an RBT and you have three or four clients, that all the skill sets you're going to learn are just related to the skill sets of those three or four clients that you're going to have to advocate for your skill set as a developing BCBA. And yeah, people aren't comfortable with that, but it's going to be far more uncomfortable once you're a behavior analyst and now you can't get a job anywhere because you don't have enough skills, you know? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, and the thing with that is, and, you know, something else I really emphasize to students is, um, 
we we do this assignment in one of our courses where we're, we develop um, kind of like a, a self-assessment of competence, kind of a metric that they can use as they continue throughout their career so they can constantly reassess as their competence grows. Because the companies, for the most part, um, are not doing any type of assessment. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> what your scope is. Um, and so you have to be the one that knows whether or not you are or are not equipped to take a certain case. And I don't think many times that um, students are able to really objectively self-assess. And then as an early career professional, you, you know, you have this tendency to kind of need to prove yourself, which I get, I'm sure that happens in all fields. And so, you know, sometimes you may overstate what what you're able to do, or you may say yes to too many things mm-hmm. just because you don't want them to think that, you can't handle those things. Um, sometimes, you know, what I talk to my students about is early in my career, like I was given a lot of opportunities to do things that I probably shouldn't have been, yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't have taken those opportunities, you know? Um, but I was working under this kind of misperception that if someone was offering me this opportunity, they must think that like, I'm, I'm a good fit for this and I know how to do it. And that, that was wrong. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's such a shift in like mindset too. Like, let's say if someone was a teacher for a long time and then they switched roles to being a behavior analyst, like as a teacher, you don't get to be like, oh no, sorry, this isn't in my area of competency. Like your, you know, school districts can be like, oh, that's hilarious. Take this child. But as a mm-hmm. behavior analyst, there's a very strict code of ethics that you do have to, you know, identify. And that's a great idea of like a self-assessment to know that like, no, no, no. Like this is a different job. This isn't the same thing. So it would be like, I think for teachers too, such a shift in mindset. Yeah. Oh, I mean, for sure. I experienced this when I was working in the schools as well. And, you know, I, I think about the teacher prep programs and how, again, like the, the landscape of education and the types of kids, um, and the types of issues that teachers are being tasked to deal with, um, you know, I have a lot of friends that are teachers and I have a lot of students that are teachers and it goes well beyond <laughs> what yeah. you guys got education and training on. Um, and it makes me think about like teacher, um, like student teaching opportunities. And that's like your one practice yes. <laughs> opportunity. Yeah. I mean, um, I did, I student taught in an inclusion setting and then I got a, a job and an inclusion, like early childhood. And then I got a job as a self-contained middle school teacher. Like they weren't like remotely similar, but they're like, Oh, you have the certification. There you go. And you're like, exactly. Oh, and that's what it is in our field too. It's like, you got those four magic letters behind your name and you're expected to be just a Jack of all trades. Yeah. And, um, it's really, it's, it's, you know, it's tough. I think, again, as like an early career professional trying to stand your ground or be more selective. Certainly you can be more selective in the job market today than, um, you know, when I was first starting out. But what I tell them is, um, you know, even when it comes down to, you know, them trying to say, no, I have too many clients on my caseload as it is, um, until we start holding our ground, until we start pushing back, there's not going to be any contingencies from the business side of things to hire more people or build in more professional development into, you know, the, the workplace. And we, as long as we keep saying yes and keep just trying to wing it and make it work, these trends will continue. Do you recommend having more than one placement during your period of getting supervision hours? 
I think it really depends on the placement. So there are some, you know, agencies that, um, you know, have a wide variety of different types of clients that they work with, and maybe they have a clinic and hand a home, or they, you know, have a therapeutic day school. And all of that kind of happens under one, you know, roof, so to speak. But certainly working with multiple different supervisors, I think it is absolutely necessary. You know, the board says that um, you have to work with at least, you know, two different clients, but even working with two different clients within the same agency in the same service setting and with the same supervisor, it could be just kind of more of the same. Um, and so when we think about working at multiple sites, you know, these issues come up of, okay, so am I trying to work at two different sites concurrently? Am mm -hmm. I you know, doing those experiences consecutively. And from the site's perspective, from the business's perspective, um, you know, they want some minimum time commitment. They don't want any more turnover than they're already dealing with. Um, so I think it, in those respects too, sometimes a site might be um, more, more apt to oversell the types of training experiences that, um, you know, a student might get or the types of clients that they might have an opportunity to work with. But, you know, you think about what you want to do long term, where you want to work. And if it is a specific type of setting, like if you know you want to work with adults or, you know, you want to work in um, residential facilities or schools or something like that, then, yes, definitely make sure to prioritize getting um, a field placement in one of those settings, because there's so many things that become kind of setting specific. Like I think about working in schools and thinking about special ed law and, you know, working with IEPs and due process and 504 plans and learning all the different functions of, you know, everyone from like the teacher to the different support professionals and knowing what your role is in those settings, because you don't just have free reign to do you know, what, whatever you think needs yeah. to be done. <laughs> There's a lot of people in the sandbox. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, not knowing what your role is and not knowing how to stay in your lane can really, um, make or break whether or not you're successful working in those settings. Um, but when it comes to, you know, that, that variety of experience, it's hard to say, okay, you should jump around to a bunch of different sites because, the sites, you know, that also means that there's going to be inherent turnover for the clients. Um, that wasn't as much of a, a concern or a thing, you know, when I was getting trained because I wasn't assigned as anyone's like direct therapist or yeah. something like that. Um, I was always just kind of like the right hand to the BCBA. <laughs> so I didn't have to worry about anyone's services getting disrupted by me saying, okay, I want to go take a different placement now. But that's a good thing to keep in mind when you're interviewing at places, just like having in the back of their head, like they have different reinforcers than we do. So like, yeah, they're the, uh, you know, the overselling thing isn't even always probably a conscious choice. It's like you want to get people that want to be there. Of course, every business and every field wants to have like employee retention, but yeah, the overselling thing I think can happen pretty easily. And you just kind of, I think you have to have that red flag up of asking detailed questions and not feeling like 
awkward or uncomfortable. You know, sometimes people that are being interviewed hate asking questions back. I always mm-hmm. think in an interview, you need both. Like if you just sit there and nod your head, I'm always like, why, why don't you have any questions? Like what's going on? <laughs> yeah, no, it needs to be a conversation. And it, you know, I talk to the students about how it's like, you are interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you because you're not just going in as an employee. Um, but that's the thing too, that I think makes stuff tricky right now is Um, When students are taking these employment positions, really getting them to understand how, okay, you have specific responsibilities as an employee, and then some of that may overlap with what you need to do as as an intern or as a field experience student, but there's going to be other stuff that you need to do to meet your BACB requirements that are outside of your uh, job responsibilities, or there might be parts of your job that can't qualify, you know, as ours um, for the board and really kind of figuring out, okay, if I'm taking a full-time job here and, you know, 90% of the hours that I spend are all going to be doing, say, you know, restricted activities, um, are they thinking about, okay, how am I going to get those unrestricted activities, those training opportunities on top of this, even just in terms of like, the number of hours in the day. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, if you're like committing yourself, over committing yourself already, and then you have to add all that on top. Yeah. I like the idea of putting like an employee hat on and a supervisee hat on, like viewing it as two different roles that could or could not, you know, be overlapping at times. Yeah. And I think that's important too, because often as an employee, you have different contingencies in place with regards to like performance evaluations, or even thinking about like, if you, if you're ready to quit or whatever, um, how much notice you would have to give as an employee versus how much notice is in your, um, your training contract to terminate that relationship. Because, you know, both of those need to be uh, considered when you're trying to transition out of those roles. It's a lot, it's a lot for students to, to navigate and, um, it's, it's really a lot for supervisors to stay on top of too. I, I don't, I don't envy. All I, know, I like that you mentioned that, that, you know, how much work it is to be a supervisor. You know, I, I get asked a lot too, if I'll do supervision or remote supervision, I, and I don't have the time because I don't, I wouldn't have the time to do it well. I mm-hmm. only did supervision one year and I really, I was telling your class this when I was talking to them last week, I really did it as like, cause it was a ton of work. But I did it as like a pay it forward because I was lucky enough to be supervised in my classroom when I was a teacher, which was amazing because I would go to class at night, learn stuff and like come back and be able to like work with my supervisor on these concepts in real life. And and I love doing it in a gen ed building, in a self-contained classroom and having all these experiences. So I was like, you know, I feel like this to me, to me, it was a big like pay it forward in the field. Like I had supervisors that didn't charge me and supervised me and it was great. So I was happy to be the supervisor for three interns that wanted school experience. And, and they ended up actually, I thought they'd work mostly in the self-contained rooms and they worked mostly in the rest of the gen ed building, which was a blast. Like gen ed teachers. experience. It was so fun. Like, and it like kind of caught on, like, slowly like wildfire is not the right saying because that makes it exaggerated (laughs) but like teachers started being like oh I heard like so-and-so set up a token economy in their room how do I get one of those token economies I was like oh you want a token economy too like it was so (laughs) cool to like see gen ed teachers like what's that fluency instruction you've been talking about you know so um 
even in gen ed buildings, obviously it's so applicable, but that does bring me to, to supervision in schools. So for teachers that are looking to become BCBAs, do you currently have students or have you worked with students that were able to do their hours in their classroom as teachers? Yeah, so I've had teachers, uh, I've had students in the past who worked in that capacity, um, who did their field experience in their classroom, um, largely though because they had like a district BCBA who could provide that supervision. And like, you know, when I was working in the classroom, I was working as a, as a para, so um, that it's a different role, you know, and there was a, a BCBA, I worked in a special ed co-op, um, but I know of another, you know, stu- a student who was a teacher in, in that same school. And so she was teaching and also getting her hours. Um, but it, it gets a little tricky when there's not, um, a BCBA working with the district because so <laughs> you, yeah, this is a huge question. We could have talked yeah. about this the whole time. <laughs> you can hire any, and anyone can do this. Anyone can hire kind of a commercially available, so to speak, supervisor, whether they're going to do in-person um, supervision or remote supervision. Where it gets tricky is working with the school to be able to have an outside person come in and do that. Um, because every school has different policies and procedures for outsiders coming in and doing observations and things like that. And obviously, if you're doing remote supervision, then you're talking about having to do video recordings, and that increases risk of breach of confidentiality and and stuff like that. Um, But what I find is particularly difficult in those situations and with any, um, whenever you have an outside kind of consultant, you know, commercial supervisor coming in, is that... um, they don't have any jurisdiction. They don't have any governance over really what goes on in that classroom. So you could um, be the teacher of the classroom and they're telling you, you know, to try all these different strategies and stuff like that. But you may not be allowed to change things like the curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um, You may not be allowed to actually, as a teacher, put into place a type of individualized intervention plan if, you know, that's not, um, you know, in their IEP or, you know, the parents don't agree to it or, or whatever the case may be. And so what I find difficult about those, those uh, situations is it becomes all kind of just conversation and suggestions about like, oh, what you could do or what you should do and less having an opportunity to actually try those things out and, and see them, uh, you know, in implementation. And it's, you know, Supervision is not just about talking and hypotheticals. Yeah. <laughs> it's about actually doing these different things. And so I think that's one of the biggest barriers that I see, um, you know, for, for teachers, if, especially if they don't have, um, you know, a BCBA who's hired by the school and obviously then does have a place in that system and a role. And they are supposed to be giving these recommendations and stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, if you're hiring a, um, kind of one of these outside consulting supervisors, then, you know, it can get expensive. Yeah. I know teachers that, you know, I've met a lot of teachers that work in a really remote area and they're like, there's literally just no BCBAs by me. And that's kind of the route they're going. And they're like, I can't wrap my brain around the cost. I was like, you almost just have to think about it as tuition and like that this is, if you really want to become a BCBA and that's what you have to do, that you just, you know, that's my advice. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but viewing it as like a tuition cost for your program. Yeah. And it's, it creates this weird, um, it creates this weird situation, I think. And, you know, there's a lot of different um, commercially available supervisors now. And, um, you know, just like there's 
a whole spectrum of, uh, you know, competence and skills with BCBAs. Supervision is a, is a very specific skill set in and of itself. And I think a lot about um, when you enter into this type of uh, agreement or arrangement with someone as your supervisor, um, how how the the power shifts a little bit then because you're almost like the you know the customer yeah and your satisfaction or dissatisfaction with the supervisory experience um can you know start to inform and change the supervisor's behavior and it's i think very reasonable to suspect that if a supervisor is you know a bit more critical and a bit more demanding and, you know, really being quite judicious and what they sign off on and the types of evaluations they give, then that could, you know, make the the student in that situation be like, well, if you're not going to sign off on these hours, then I'm just going to go elsewhere. And then from the supervisor's perspective, then you kind of lose that client. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I didn't really you know, think about it that way. It, it creates these weird dynamics sometimes and I don't, you know, I, I think about, I think about a lot of stuff like that because there's not a lot of other fields that have all of these weird dynamics like we do, especially with, um, you know, the, the paid positions for practicum and things like that. And it, it, similarly, you know, even if you're not paying the supervisor sites, you know, they, again, they don't want the turnover. They want to keep, you know, the technicians there. So, again, you can see how a supervisor might be less inclined to, you know, be a bit more critical or, you know, uh, you know, create some lines in the sand around how proficiency needs to be demonstrated in order to get hours signed off on. Um, yeah. I mean, overall, <laughs> the supervision thing is just murky. <laughs> so I feel like advice to prospective BCBAs is to not, I think, discount you know, as we've been talking through all these different scenarios too, I even realized more not to discount how complicated the supervision piece can be and also how important it is. Like the goal isn't to get through it quickly. The goal is to get through it well and to learn skills at a high level of competency. So like there's not a, you know, a rush of let's get, you know, all these hours in, but really thinking through each choice and not just viewing it as like a checklist item. Absolutely. 100%. And, you know, I tell the supervisor, I do a lot of supervisor training and we talk about how, like, I also get the inclination when you're having a particularly tough time or, um, you know, the supervisor relationship is not going that well, how it's, you know, easy for you to also just, I'm just going to put my head down, go through the motions, sign off on whatever, because then I'm not going to have to work with this (laughs) person very much longer. But thinking about the ramifications to, um, obviously the, the, the reputation of the field, the repertoire of the student, the work that they're going to go out and do the clients that they're going to work with, like they will be working with clients probably independently or with little to no supervision once they're certified. Um, and so like supervisors are one of three gatekeepers, you know, the academic programs are the gatekeepers and whether or not like we pass students to these classes, um, the exam is a gatekeeper and supervisors. Like if someone is not making progress, if they're not meeting goals, then you shouldn't be signing off on those hours. Um, you are ultimately kind of what can protect them from even getting to the point where they can sit for the exam. Um, but that also means that you have to have defined goals. You have to be measuring progress. Um, 
Yeah, those Which, are great questions to ask a potential supervisor. <laughs> like, do you have students ask that? Like, ask supervisors, like, how are you going to measure my progress? Like, I'd love to, like, as a potential supervisee, like, see students asking supervisors that. Like, how will you measure my progress? Yeah, so asking them, you know, certainly if the site has any, um, you know, structured or or any type of curriculum or anything like that, that they've already designed um, and how they'll be expected to move through that, what the evaluation processes are like. Um, I think one of the things I like about the shift in how we're documenting our hours and, you know, it used to be every like week or um, other week. And then you just had that final form where you sign off on all the hours. Now the supervisor has a monthly form that they have to sign off on. And what I like about it is that, you know, I tell the supervisors, you can, with your contract that you initiate at the beginning of this, just keep adding addenda. So each month, you know, you have your goals set for that month. And if the student does or doesn't meet them, that determines whether or not you sign off on that month's, um, that month's hours. And this is a lot easier to manage, especially manage in, a, in an objective way than getting through the whole year, two years or whatever. And at the end, just being like, you know, I just don't think I should sign off. On so yeah, form. sorry, these two years were just a waste for all of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it really, you know, I think it's, it can help hold the supervisor more accountable to being more objective and consistent with how things are measured and how those evaluations occur. Because if you don't have that, then it's really easy to just kind of keep kicking the can and thinking it will get better. And, and then, yeah, like I said, you get to that point where you're like, no, I'm not signing off on these hours and you're really setting yourself up for a contested experience. Yeah. And this is why the board, you know, in the contract requirements, it says that you have to have those objectives and those measurable outcomes and the specific criteria for, um, you know, what the student has to do for you to sign or not sign yeah. off on the hours. And so the more clear uh, you lay those things out in advance, the much easier it's going to be for you to consistently enforce them because you're both agreeing to that at the onset. It's not like you're changing things, you know, midway and like, okay, now it's clear that you're not taking my feedback or something like that. So now I have to put all this documentation into place. That stuff's always been required. It's just, you know, they don't make us turn it in. So I don't know how, yeah. how much it's being done. I mean, that's just like best practices for really any job, like any job or team works, you know, more smoothly when there's clear expectations, there's feedback given, like, I mean, obviously ABA works ever, but I mean, any job that you've ever been in, it's, you're going to be more successful when there are measurable goals and there is feedback being given and there are contingencies in place to meet those goals. Absolutely. And I think giving clear expectations, though, is, is easier than it sounds. You know, we talk about this a lot in our supervision and training class. And something you think you think about, like the soft skills and the ambiguous stuff that's hard to define, like, you know, professional decorum. And um, unless you really think about, OK, how am I going to define this? How am I going to measure whether or not they are meeting my expectations for this? I think a lot of people go in assuming that we all have the same understanding of what constitutes, you know, timely communication or applying feedback or, um, you know, like pro professional decorum, what, whatever those things are. Um, it's, you know, it's a lot easier when you say, okay, I need you implementing these techniques with, you know, X percent treatment integrity. Um, that's a lot easier to, to, to yes. define and evaluate than really the, 
everything in between the implementation. I mean, that's like, honestly, it's like the same thing with like writing IEP goals for students, like, you know, goals that are like, oh, well, we'll behave well in class. You're like, how the hell do I track progress on this? But it's like, you know, and I talk about that with staff training for teachers and paras a lot too, you know, like do your job or take data or show up on time. Like everyone has different definitions and conflict arises from those miscommunications. Like that's where the problem stems from. Absolutely. Right, so the communication talk- thing, for sure, I see it come up constantly um, because, you know, one supervisor may be okay with getting text messages. One wants, you know, um, everything kind of, you know, formalized in an email. You know, one person's like, I don't ever want to be contacted outside of business hours. The other person is like, I need to know things immediately. And those things really aren't talked about a lot at the onset of the supervisory relationship. And they, they need, it would save so many headaches, I think, and really salvage so many supervisory relationships. Cause once things start to deteriorate between the supervisor and the student, um, it can be hard to bounce back from that because a lot of avoidance behavior typically starts. (laughs) Yeah. Your history of learning is suddenly very negative. (laughs) Yeah. So I feel like we talk about supervision all day, but let's touch on the exam really quick before we wrap up. So obviously classes, supervision, the big piece, and then that like awfully dreaded exam (laughs) that I feel like should have like a capital E because it's like, the exam. Any yeah. like advice for approaching that or, you know, undertaking that big, you know, task? <laughs> yeah, I think um so one of the things that I think is important for students to understand is depending on, you know, what program they went to or whatever, they may have gotten a lot of, you know, content um that is not on the task list. And that's great because really the, you know, we should be be going beyond the task list and and the stuff that they're learning about in class. But when it comes to studying for the exam, you really need to tailor your studying to exactly what's on the task list, because that's exactly where those questions on the exam are coming from. And thinking about the task list, um, you know, you have that this big section that's called foundational knowledge um, in the fourth edition, and it's it's all kind of like definitions, right? And so what I see a lot of students in various like study materials and study groups and stuff like that, they're just focusing on like making sure they have all the definitions memorized. And that's not really the types of questions that are going to be asked on the exam. The exam is really looking at your ability to, you know, synthesize all those different aspects of the task list in and be able to come up with that correct answer in, you know, a single question. It's not going to ask you for the definition of reinforcement. You know, you'll be given vignettes and having to, you know, interpret um, potentially, you know, like the the function or what's going on or uh, analyze data. And so it's really much more an assessment of your, you know, your practice repertoire as well as can be assessed on an exam, you know, Mm -hmm. and, you know, like the conceptual knowledge of your of your practice repertoire. And the other thing is, you know, because everyone's just like, oh, it's so tricky and they're trying to confuse you. And what we talk about from an instructional design perspective is you may get a question and it's like all of these answers are somewhat kind of right, but there's one that is the most right. Yeah. <laughs> and what they're trying to do is really assess whether or not you can make those very fine discriminations um, and not get an answer right by chance, so to speak, right? We don't want anyone passing the exam because, you know, they're good guessers yeah, they're or they're good at using like backwards logic and, uh, you know, 
deductive reasoning and crossing out answers and things like that. Um, so a lot of it has to do with your test taking skills and your ability to, when you're reading a question, focus on what the you know relevant um, information in the question is, what is irrelevant and just kind of in there as, as fluff kind of distractors um, and not getting caught in kind of reading between the lines and adding information that's not in there. Cause I think sometimes what students will do is like, they'll read a question and then they'll look at the answers and based on what information they're kind of filling in, that's how they get to where like, Oh, well, any of these answers could really be right. Uh, and that's not, <laughs> that's not how the case is. Like you want to read the question and before you look at the answers, like if you can come up with the answer before you look at that list, that that's a much better, uh, kind of indicator that you you know the answer to that question. And then I think it's when they go through and look at all the different answer options and try to, you know, think, well, maybe it could be this, maybe it could be that, that they start to get confused. Yeah, that's great advice to think of the answer first and not because I mean, that's that's how we I think, honestly, that mimics real life. First of all, like kids aren't mid meltdown being like, hey, a, a DRO would have prevented this. Use this next yeah. time. Like, so that <laughs> is like the real world. But also, you know, we can convince ourselves easily of lots of things. So like, yeah, the con- oh, this answer could be right. This answer could be right. Um, so even just thinking of the answer before you jump in is great advice. Exactly. And that's, I mean, like how stressful must that experience be to be like, humming and hawing over all these different answers? And, you know, you only have so much time, you know, uh, to get the entire test done. I think, I, you know, like a- approaching it, knowing that it's going to be confusing if you are thinking it's going to be one clear, correct answer and the rest incorrect. You know, that that's just not a good expectation. Yeah. The other thing I think is there's a lot of commercial test prep resources available. There's a lot of different Facebook groups and things like that. And what students don't realize sometimes is, you know, just because something is sold online, just because something says like, this is the big, you know, best study ABA book, whatever. (laughs) Um, doesn't mean that anyone has actually evaluated the accuracy of, you know, the answers that are in there or um, how, how, you know, similar the questions are in those mock exams to what's likely to be on the actual test. And so I think they feel a little, um, you know, like, oh my goodness, I spent all this money on this test prep stuff and, I'll, you know, they'll come to me and say like, this question is really confusing. How did they get to that answer? And I'm just like, that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that really, I try to tell my students, like, try not to spend so much money on those test prep resources because you just don't know the quality of them. And then a lot of times in the study groups online, you have students posting questions and they're really confusingly worded. Um, and it's just, it confuses the students more. Um, or there's asking about stuff that's not going to be on the test. So I had, I saw a thread in one of the Facebook groups that just kind of like fell down the rabbit hole of a question about RFT. And I was like, that's not going to be on the exam. <laughs> Don't waste your time. <laughs> right. Especially if you're in, like, not waste your time, but if you're in study mode, yeah. obviously you want to spend your minutes where it counts. Yeah, exactly. And so I think, you know, we work with our students kind of uh, along the way in their program, evaluating where, um, you know, their knowledge is based on all the different content areas in the task list. And so when you're taking tests and doing practice exams and things like that, um, you know, looking at, okay, what 
specific aspects of the task list are you, you know, kind of consistently having the most trouble with and then making sure that you're spending, you know, more time focusing on those areas than just kind of broadly, you know, reading Cooper, you know, cover to cover. So, and I think thinking about when you took classes, like I took my program part-time. So I really focused on my studying on the courses I took first. Cause that was like, the most removed from, you know, my brain at that point. So like reviewing things, a course that you took two years ago, or especially if you did, you know, more of a, a more spread out program, if you did it, you know, while working or part-time or whatever. That's For sure. And really making sure if you think about like the scope and sequence of the courses, like before you get in the weeds of studying, um, like any of the more applied examples, like you got to make sure you're, you're firm and fluent with the concepts and principles yeah. because you're still wavering on that at all. It's obviously going to impair your ability to answer the other questions. And what happens, I think sometimes is students will, you know, get, you know, a decent way into their coursework or something like that. And, and they kind of teach themselves how to answer those questions, those applied scenario questions well. And in doing so, by saying, okay, so they looked at the question in the book, they looked at the answer, and then they kind of created this reasoning or this rule of why that answer was the answer for that question. And in doing that, it starts to create all this, these other weird rules <laughs> and relations um, that may or may not be accurate yeah, <laughs> with that. regards to the concepts and principles. So you should always be able to answer everything in it you know, or come defend your answer, I should say, um, you know, from a conceptually systematic standpoint. Yeah, that's, oh, that's super helpful. So, okay. Lots of information talked about <laughs> coursework, supervision and the exam. So last question, I guess, what is your, this is a broad one, so it doesn't have to be long, but what is your overall advice? Like, what would you say to someone that's like, I, I mean, you probably talked to a lot of prospective students, <laughs> yeah. wants to become a BCBA. What is your like, your, your sell or not sell or what advice do you give them? Yeah. So I think one of the first things, um, I think like one of the things that we ask on our admissions essays, um, is like, why do you want to be a BCBA? What do you want? Like, what impact do you want to make in this field? What do you want to do? Um, because I think for students who have, um, a really specific area of practice in mind, like they want to work in schools or, you know, there's a lot of people who are interested in how can we get ABA applied to, you know, criminal justice, things like that. Um, when you're picking a graduate program, you really want to look for a program that's going to have faculty that have, you know, expertise and training in those areas. And if, you know, that program has practicum included that they have training placements in those areas, because while it's, you know, we can say, yes, you know, ABA can be applied everywhere and behavior is behavior and yada, yada, yada. What it's going to come down to is whether or not you can actually get training in those specialty areas, whether or not you can get uh, field experience placement in those specialty areas. So if you want to go into like behavioral pediatrics or gerontology or, um, you know, substance use, whatever, like you got to be selective with the programs that you apply to because not every program is going to be able to give you those specialty areas of application. Um, and then talking with students about um, the program that they're selecting and thinking themselves about like the type of learner that they are how, what type of setup do they need to really thrive? Not just to get through it, you know, but if they need 
the the face-to-face, the conversation. They need that. They know that they learn better than just, you know, reading a book and, you know, doing um, quizzes and stuff like that online, or that they have really hard time attending to video lectures or something like that. Then, you know, they should probably go to a face-to-face, an on-campus program, as opposed to um, a blended program or an online program. And it's not because one is better than the other. It's because you have to think about, you know, what is going to be the most effective and the most enjoyable learning experience for you? Um, because if you hate every moment of class, <laughs> then, yeah, you're not. <laughs> yeah. Um, so thinking about that, and it, I know that that's tough because I, I think a lot of times when students approach uh, programs, it's more about the logistics, you know, the geography, the schedule, the tuition, et cetera. And just like, you know, we were saying with vetting placements, um, you have to think about like, what is going to be the best for you? What's going to result in you getting the best training and your repertoire developing to the degree that you need it to? Um, so be, be choosy. There's a bajillion programs out there. Yeah, probably not. Of, can you tell a little bit about number. your, um, can you, um, speaking of programs, can you tell a little bit about your program at National Lewis before we wrap up? Yeah. So, um, we started the program at National Lewis. We had our founding cohort in fall of 2017, and uh, we run a completely blended program, but every class does have weekly face-to-face um, for one night a week. So we start our classes off um, where for that whole first year of the program, uh, for the master's program, students do one class at a time, and we have four hours of class each week and then some online stuff as well because Uh, We feel very strongly um, that we want students to have an opportunity to practice these things. So like immediately what they're learning, um, you know, in the online lectures and things like that, then they come to class that week and we have an immediate opportunity to discuss it, to practice it so that we can shape those things you know, in the moment. We know (laughs) the immediacy of this stuff um, is so important. And so I really love that we've been able to create a program that um, still has the flexibility of a blended program and they're only on campus one night a week, um, but really still has the intensity of a a full-time 100% campus-based program where we get to have so much hands-on, hands-on time with the students. It still feels like it's not enough time, but yeah. uh, I, you know, we see the students every week and we're just actively working through everything that we're learning on. Um, so, and then we did the one class at a time. We're on a quarter system. So they do one class um, every 10 weeks for that first year in the master's program because it's so important, we think, in how we've designed the scope and sequence of the program that you really master those early classes before you get into the higher order assessment and intervention and application classes, and certainly before they start their thesis. We want to make sure that no one's passing through by kind of slipping through the cracks. And so with that, too, um, one of our other faculty members, Jessica Gamba, um, she worked with a um, computer programmer. We developed our own test prep software. We developed our own SAFMED software. And so from day one, you know, we have we're constantly measuring our students learning and seeing what needs to be changed in class, seeing, you know, um, at what point in the curriculum certain skills are mastered, then whether or not they retain. Um, so it's, you know, it's very data driven as you would expect. I love it. I love it. Behavior analytic program to be, but, um, I love it because we're able to have both all of that real time data coming in because of the online activities. And then we're immediately able to address those things 
in class. And I just think that's so important, especially as the field experience requirements are changing. So we're having students who are starting their um, experience hours, you know, day one. And so it's so important that from the get-go, they're they're learning that conceptual grounding of what they're doing on site because it's very easy, like we said, to create those those misrules about why they're doing what they're doing and what's working and what's not working. And that's a lot harder to undo than it is just to teach it correctly the, yeah. the first time. Well, that sounds amazing. So if people want to learn more, they can go to National Lewis's website and click on the ABA program link, I'm assuming, somewhere on there. Yep. So it's um, nl.edu and you can just, you know, type ABA up in the search box and it'll be the first link that comes up. Great. Well, thank you so much. This, I like, I learned so much. A lot of, you know, things keep changing, so I'm not always an (laughs) expert in this. So thank you for answering a lot of these questions and hopefully answering, you know, helping people kind of get a little guidance on where to go with their next choices. Absolutely. And be, you know, choosy choosers. So (laughs) there's certainly no, uh, There's certainly no deprivation when it comes to either programs or, you know, training opportunities at this point. So definitely, you know, the world is their oyster. They can make it what they want. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jen. Thank you so much again. Did you know that two out of three teachers turn to Teachers Pay Teachers for educational resources? As a seller on TPT, this makes me so excited. I love seeing educators turn to other educators for support in their classrooms. There are so many great resources on Teachers Pay Teachers. And this could be made even better if we could involve school budgets in this process. Enter TPT for Schools. TPT for Schools makes it easy for administrators and teachers to collaborate when making curricular decisions. TPT helps you set up a way of using school funds for these resources. This is a new program and there's already over 5,000 schools registered. In the special ed world, this is even more important because we don't have that many resources and the resources that are provided for us might not be so appropriate for our class. To learn more about TPT for Schools, visit schools.teacherspayteachers.com. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest, or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, Everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.